0: From the Third Coast International Audio Festival and Chicago Public Radio, I'm Gwen Maxi, and this is ReSound.
1: Right. Come on, let's make a record. Now, this is a message in other tongues. If mm-hmm. you have the interpretation, would you stand? Let me recognize you, and then you can give the interpretation, all right? Give it out forcefully. Give up mm-hmm.
2: the word. Give up Lucifer. Bow your heads and say yes.
0: Mm-hmm. All others are just I want
2: you to be like me. I don't want you to worship me. I want you to be like I am.
0: ReSound is a remix. Of found sound, sound bites, music, mayhem, documentaries, and oddities that we dig up where no one else is looking we're always in search of sound. But most people search for other things. Food, warmth, love, knowledge, answers. And everyone seems to have a different notion of where to search. Religion, nature, home, science, faith. Some of us stop when we feel sated. Others keep looking and looking forever. Today on ReSound, the search for spiritual fulfillment. Look no further and stay with us.
2: I'm a god and you're a god.
0: In the search for enlightenment, there's perhaps no more desperate, dark, yet very funny story than the one you're about to hear. Independent producer Benjamin Walker wrote and performed this piece originally for his show called Your Radio Nightlight. Now, I can't tell you that it's completely true, though I doubt it's completely false. And I'd offer to call Benjamin Walker up and ask him about the veracity of the story, but that would do absolutely nothing to answer the question, since he's notoriously cagey about such things and loves to keep people on the edge of disbelief. It's untitled, perhaps because it defies labeling of any kind.
3: start high school, my mother meets a man on the number 40 bus who informs her that the end of the world is going to occur at exactly 7.06 p.m. on July the 31st, and that it is only his church, the first church of Jesus Christ astrophysicist, that can save her from eternal damnation. He gives my mother a packet of Xeroxed pages with a phone number scrawled on the back. Then he warns her not to think too hard about it. You think too hard, he says, and the next thing you know, you'll be watching yourself dissolve into nothingness. This is the afternoon of the 21st, a whole ten days before the world is set to end. A whole ten days to think about if it's really necessary to go up into the Rocky Mountains where the First Church of Jesus Christ Astrophysicist has its underground bunker. But that night... That night as my mother reads to my sister and I from the Xeroxed pages it's clear that her mind is already made up. According to the First Church of Jesus Christ astrophysicist, Jesus is not just the Son of God. He's a brilliant scientist as well, an astrophysicist who's figured out all the secret laws of the universe, including the secret of time travel. According to church dogma, Jesus promised his followers that on July thirty-first, 1984, just before his father destroyed the universe for once and for all, he would come back to earth to transport his faithful to the faraway past, all the way back in time to the original Garden of Eden. Like I said, it's obvious that my mother has already made up her mind about this strange new church even though she's reading to us in her calm, rational voice, the one she uses whenever she wants to sound like a cautionary skeptic rather than a fanatic. But at this point, both my sister and I are incapable of being fooled by the voice. We both know that the stapled Xerox pages alone mean that, once again, we'll be changing our religion. But for some reason, when my mother finishes reading and begins to ask us what we think about the idea of maybe joining this new church, neither my sister nor I utter a single word of protest. My sister even offers up the suggestion that this Jesus Christ astrophysicist is perhaps the reason she won the fifth grade science fair. And I chime in with, you know, Mom, I've always believed in time travel. The cause of all this amenability. Perhaps we're both just sick and tired of fighting her. Perhaps we're both willing to try anything so long as it means no more abortion clinic protests. Or perhaps my sister imagines, as I do, that the underground bunker will contain a high number of beautiful, available teenage girls. At this point in my life, the only girls I know are the ones in the raw section of the Sears catalog. So the First Church of Jesus Christ astrophysicist seems to me a worthwhile gamble, for if, if all the stuff about the Garden of Eden turns out to be true, then it's only a matter of days before I will be hanging around in paradise with a bunch of naked girls. My mother sends my sister and I to bed, and then she dials the number from the back of the Xerox pages. In the morning, our bags are already packed. She doesn't even bother to lock the door behind us. We take a taxi to the downtown bus station, then we get on a bus for the mountain town of Telluride, where a representative from the church will be waiting for us. The first time my mother is born again is on a hot summer afternoon. I'm seven years old, and once again my little sister and I are out book shopping with her instead of playing outside like normal children. Every day our mother forces us to accompany her to the various used bookstores and Salvation army dumps she likes to haunt. But while she races around these stores with frantic, manic energy, it is all my sister and I can do to remain conscious. We're at the 6th Avenue Book Market, and as always, the fat balding clerk asks my mother if he can be of assistance. But for some reason, my mother doesn't respond with her usual curt wave of the hand. Instead, she begins to weep. She rushes us out of the store and onto a crosstown bus. Everybody stares. My sister buries her little face in her lap, but I don't say anything. I just play it cool. I act like it's merely a coincidence that I'm sitting next to this wailing crazy woman. Then, when we get off the bus at the corner of Eastman and Dahlia, my mother grabs us both by the wrists and begins to run with us towards the University Hills Church of Christ. Her nails dig deep into my flesh, but I'm too terrified to cry out. She yanks open the door and we spill into the church. It's empty and quiet. I can hear only the sound of her heart pounding away. Then, after our eyes become accustomed to the soft coolness, we start walking up the aisle towards the altar. That's when the priest appears. Can I help you, he asks. Yes, we want to become Christians, my mother shouts out. The priest goes to the altar and picks up a silver basin. Come lay down on the floor in front of me. My mother prostrates herself on the ground. She pulls my sister and I down with her. The priest stands directly over us. Do you accept Jesus Christ as your personal savior and promise to worship and love him and only him? Yes, yes, my mother says. And what about your children? They need a savior too, and I promise to raise them in Christ. The priest then tips the basin over, and water rains down on the three of us. My mother starts singing, Hosanna, Hosanna. My sister gets water in her eyes and starts to cry. I just hold my breath until it's all over. Then about a month later, my mother sits my sister and I down and tells us that we will no longer be attending the University Hills Church of Christ. Why not, we ask, because we're Catholics now, she says. This is fine with me. Ever since Pastor Beeben caught my mother stealing holy water, the kids at the University Hills Church of Christ have given me nothing but grief. But things are no better at the Catholic Church of the Risen Christ, for my mother makes me become an altar boy, and every Sunday all the Catholic kids from my school snicker at me from their pews as I fumble my way through the service. And at school, it's even worse. Someone spreads the rumor that I am personally responsible for washing the shit stains from Monsignor Jones' underwear, and somehow this turns into an unshakable nickname of Poop. Yes, everybody at school, even Mr. Haynes, the gym teacher, calls me Poop. My mother, however, is thrilled with the change in religion. She loves all the new rituals, traditions, and theological mysteries that now occupy her thoughts 24-7. And to top it all off, there's the Catholic Book and Supply Store. It takes us three buses to get to the Catholic Book and Supply Store... But this is no deterrent, for my mother sees the Catholic Book and Supply store as more than just a religious outlet mall. For her, it's pretty much heaven on earth. Aisles and aisles of books, porcelain figurines, holy cards, frameable iconography. There's even a line of clothing. For the six months that we are Catholic, we go every Saturday, and it's always closing time when we leave. But then, one cold winter Saturday, the number seven bus never shows up. We wait for it for over two hours, and then, furious, my mother starts to march us through the snowdrifts up Broadway. I think she actually planned on having us walk the four miles. But thanks to God's divine intervention, We only had to walk two blocks, for at the corner of First and Broadway is a small and simple storefront with a sign that reads, The Bible Bookstore. The Bible Bookstore is the complete opposite of the Catholic Book and Supply Store. There are no ostentatious statues or graven images. And Kitty, the owner of the Bible Bookstore, is a plain and simple woman, a Lutheran. That night, after our mother has put everything together, she explains to my sister and I that God had purposely delayed the number 7 bus so that we would find our way to the the Lutheran Church. Yes, we are now Lutherans. In fact, the very next morning, we attend Mass at the Lutheran Church of the Prince of Peace instead of the Catholic Church of the Risen Christ. But we are only Lutherans for a couple of weeks. My mother is completely taken aback by the conservatism of the Lutheran Church. And when the priest takes her aside after Mass to explain to her that a widow who does not dress in black makes a very unconvincing widow, she decides that it's time to move on. Next up, the Church of the Assembly of God... But this is a mere one-week affair, for the pastor who speaks in tongues makes too much of an impression on my sister, and for days my mother and I are subjected to gibberish that my sister insists is our dead father talking to us from heaven. There's not much I can tell you about St. Mary's Anglican Church, our next stop. All I can recall is a tour we take of a cemetery in someone's Mercedes, and how, according to the youth group's sliding fee schedule, we are declared a family of indigence. But of course, I will never forget the business with the Jews for Jesus. The Church of St. Mary's pressures my mother to do something positive about her Jewish past, so she joins the local chapter of Jews for Jesus. But when my grandfather finds out that his daughter is hanging around the Jewish Community Center distributing Jews for Jesus flyers, it goes into a rampage. And our affiliation with this group, and for that matter the Anglican Church, comes to an end. So we become Baptists. But it's another bad match. For the Baptists exhaust my mother with all their exuberance and excitement. It's only a matter of weeks before my sister and I are informed that once again we have a new religion. We are now Episcopalians, but for the first time, everything clicks. The Church of the Epiphany welcomes our mother as an individual, a religious seeker. The youth group welcomes my sister, she becomes popular, all the girls and boys vie for her attention things are so absolutely wonderful she confides to me that she's not even sure if it's real. I feel the same way, even though I don't admit it to her, for the Church of the Epiphany has given me something I have stopped hoping for, even in my most secret fantasies. As soon as we join the Church of the Epiphany, my mother informs me that it's God's will once again that I become an altar boy. I try to explain to her about how humiliating it was the first time around, but she just washes out my mouth with soap, and then the following Sunday, she sends me to Father Clark's office after Mass. But as I stand there, outside his office, I hear the unmistakable sounds of, well, what I imagine to be sexual intercourse. So I don't knock, I just stand there with my ear to the door. And then, when the door finally does open fifteen minutes later, it is Father Clark and his beautiful wife Emily, and as she walks away, he pats her lightly on the ass. He brings me into his office and sits me down, but I'm too astonished to speak. He smiles at me and then, after a bit, asks me what I imagine God thinks about sex. And that's how it all begins. Thanks to Father Clark, I no longer have to be ashamed of waking up with an erection. Thanks to Father Clark, I no longer have to be ashamed that every single woman I see fills me with incomprehensible urges. Thanks to Father Clark, I no longer have to weep after masturbating, for he assures me that my mother is wrong, and that in fact it's nothing I'll have to answer for at the last judgment in front of everyone. I am Father Clark's most devoted altar boy for the entire three years we remain Episcopalian. But never once do I call him Father Clark. I call him always, and only, Father. So when our mother informs my sister and I that we are going to be Catholic once again, I turn to my spiritual father for help, but when he shows up at the house unannounced My mother throws a fit. She locks my sister and I in the bathroom and screams at him for over an hour. She tells him that if she ever catches him near us, she'll do whatever it takes to have him arrested. After this, both my sister and I talk of running away, but neither one of us wants to be responsible for what our mother will do if we leave her alone, and neither of us wants to be the one left alone with her about the time we spend at the catholic church of most precious blood i don't like to think too much these memories have a tendency to suck everything into the darkness and they've taken too much from me already we're back at the catholic book and supply store The place is pretty much unchanged except for the carpets which are now gold. But this time we're not here for the books, we've come for the meeting. The basement of the Catholic Book and Supply store is the secret headquarters of an underground anti-abortion group called the Fetal Army of Christ. My mother has decided to become a soldier in the Fetal Army of Christ, and my sister and I, her page and squire. Every Saturday, she chains her neck to the Planned Parenthood Clinic on Washington Street with a kryptonite bike lock, and as the police saw through the lock with their torches, my sister and I pass out flyers with the names and photos of the murdering doctors. It is only after family service threatens to take us away that she agrees to stop with the bike locks and join her fellow soldiers at the proper protesting distance. But this changes nothing for my sister and I. We are still required to pass out these flyers with the photos and admonishing threats everywhere we go. And then, one afternoon, as our mother is returning home from a meeting of the fetal army of Christ, she meets the man from the First Church of Jesus Christ astrophysicist. This brings us full circle. Now I know you've been waiting patiently for the punchline to the story of the first church of Jesus Christ astrophysicist and its underground bunker, but well, unfortunately, there is no punchline. There aren't even any available beautiful teenage girls. In fact, my sister and I are the only two young virgins destined for paradise. The membership of the First Church of Jesus Christ astrophysicist is mostly older, mostly male, and totally insane. The founder of the church and the architect of the bunker goes by the name of Dr. Guru. And right away, it's obvious that he's more interested in my mother's legs than her spiritual beliefs. During the course of the ten days we spend waiting for the end of the world... Dr. Guru tries to molest all three of us. He's even bold enough to suggest a family orgy. He says that we might just find ourselves missing sin in the Garden of Eden. There's obviously more to the Church of Jesus Christ astrophysicist than simple piety and faith. But my mother wants to wait it out, at least until the 31st, just in case. And then, on the 30th, There is a storm, a tremendous storm. The thunderclaps and the torrential rain are so loud we can hear them in the underground bunker. It definitely sounds like the end of the world. In the morning, Dr. Guru is able to convince us all that we should emerge from the bunker naked. And so we open the hatches and climb out. But instead of paradise, there is only devastation. It was a tornado, and everything is uprooted and knocked over. No one says anything. The disappointment is more than palpable. And then the rangers show up four of them on horseback. And when they find out why we're all naked, they want to give Dr. Guru a ticket. This makes him angry, and he decides to start charging rent for everyone who wants to come back into the bunker with him. He won't even let us get our things. So we start back to Telluride, naked. As we walk down the mountain, I feel extremely close to my mother, as if the past seven years never happened. I ask her something I've always wanted to ask her. Don't you think that if God wanted you to find him, he wouldn't have made things so difficult? She thinks about this for a minute, and then she shakes her head. No, she says, for God works in mysterious ways.
0: Benjamin Walker is an independent radio producer whose current show, Theory of Everything, is Alt-NPR's most popular podcast. The piece you just heard is part of his Last Days series. The series was Walker's response to the start of the Iraqi war in 2003. The apocalypse, Armageddon, the end of our days as we know them, all fodder for Walker's unique outlook find a link to his show on our website at thirdcoastfestival.org and while you're there you can listen to hundreds of great documentaries from all over the world including the winners of our annual competition you can also send us some mail. Comments, questions crackpot theories can all be directed to ReSound at thirdcoastfestival.org
3: There are many, many misconceptions about the covenant that God has made with men. And the first is this nonsense about the two gods, that there's two gods, that there's the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament, that there's the, the angry fire and brimstone God and the and the lover God, the drill sergeant and the hippie.
4: I'm here to say God He's both, he's always been both, and he'll always be both.
3: He's always been angry, and he's, he's always been love. The, the analogy I like to draw really is that of uh, that of uh, a disenfranchised oil refinery worker in his trailer with his estranged wife and three young children and an AK-47. That's God. He loves you
4: so much,
0: he's going to kill you. I'm Gwen Maxi. You're listening to Resound. In the plains of rural Montana, surrounded by snow-capped mountains, there's a religious community founded by Elizabeth Clare Prophet. It's called the Church of the Universal and Triumphant. Now, I first learned about the church about 20 years ago, when the brother of a close friend joined. Even though we were all curious, we never asked him about his affiliation with the church. But when Brenda Hutchinson's sister joined the same church in Montana, Hutchinson, who's a sound artist, decided to go and check it out for herself, mic in hand. She came back with this documentary. It's called New Violet Flame.
1: Okay, what blessing are we going to do? On Buddha. On Buddha? Oh, i When you got our Father?
5: God, our Father, God, Father, God, our Father, God, God our Father, God, God, God our Father, our Charge with
1: the wine with <laughs> Oh, name name the, father, the, father, and the mother, the son, and the wife. I need a, spoon. You need a spoon?
6: Okay. For many years now, my sister has been a member of the Church Universal and Triumphant. The spiritual leader of the church is Elizabeth Clare Prophet, and its headquarters is in Montana. When my sister began having her children, I finally realized that she'd really committed herself to being in this church and to raising her family in Montana as part of a religious community that I knew very little about, and this made me uncomfortable. So I decided to go there and see for myself. So I spent three months living in the church community one winter. It was very cold, but also an incredibly beautiful place, high desert surrounded by snow-covered mountains, hardly any trees, no street lights or paved roads, so at, at night it was really dark and you could see lots of stars. It felt very still and remote and was so quiet, except for the wind, and it was very windy much of the time. While I was there, I spoke with and recorded lots of people. They were my sister's friends and neighbors, as well as officials in the church, including Elizabeth Clare Prophet herself. As time wore on, more and more people were willing to talk with me and to share things they normally did not share with
7: outsiders.
3: I found this very reassuring. When all of the thoughts of thy being soared over the ageless hills of cosmic memory. Come again! as I meditate upon thee. Each day as I call forth thy memories from the scroll of immortal love, I am thrilled anew. Patterns wondrous to behold enthrall me with the wisdom of thy creative scheme. So fearfully and wonderfully am I made that none can mar thy desire. None and despoil the beauty of thy home.
4: None can disturb the peace of my heart.
8: I certainly admire the work my mother and father have done. Um, I've seen them in every possible situation, you know, since I was a child, and they were both extremely hardworking in the founding and the formation of this organization, and they put every bit of themselves that was available and more into it they've been an example to me of walking that path of, of reunion with God one that I sometimes feel you know unable to follow in every way you know it's it's it, they're, they both wear very very you know big shoes
7: But the violet flame is called the seventh ray, and its function is transmutation or alchemy, transformation. The violet flame is a flame of forgiveness. The violet flame, which is the gift of Saint Germain, is given to us, and by decreeing, which means to affirm by the name of God, I am. Uh, the prayer of the violet flame. By doing that, we can reach people all over the world from our heart and from our love. We can send and direct that violet flame. So the violet flame is just a wonderful action of the Holy Spirit. And there's no question that you can see the difference in your life when you invoke the violet flame. A very simple way to invoke the violet flame is to use the name of God. God gave the name I Am to Moses. And to simply say, I am a being of violet fire. I am the purity God desires. And that means we take the power of the name of God I am and we qualify it with the direction, with the affirmation that God is where I am and his violet flame is enfolding me now. And through it, I am becoming the purity that God desires for me. I am a being of violet fire. I am the purity God desires. I am a being of violet fire. I am the purity God desires. I am a being of violet fire. I am the purity God desires. I am a being. I am a being. I am a being of violet fire. I am the purity God desires. I am a being of violet fire. I am the purity God desires. I am a being of violet
5: fire. I am the purity God desires. I am a being of violet fire.
7: Who's this? Buddha. It's time to do our own Buddha. So how do we fix our hands?
5: Oh, Buddha.
1: I love being out here. I love it. I I love looking at the stars at night and seeing a sunset and knowing it's not from pollution. I like that if you're broke down on the road, that cars stop and, you know, ask if you need help. I feel really fortunate and blessed to be able to have my kids growing up here. I think that they have a real shot at a a strong foundation being out here and, and growing up without a lot of external, um, stimulus or distractions. I mean, it's, it's just a totally different life out here. So I love it.
5: Everything is different. There's so many restrictions. I mean, you cannot eat sugar. You can, there's a lot of things you cannot wear red. You cannot wear black. You cannot wear orange. That's your way of expressing yourself. And we're required to wear skirts. Now that, how can a person express themselves if they've gotta wear a skirt every day? Even in the rule book they say that you're not that even on weekends you should not wear uh, spandex because it reveals too much of your shape. That's 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 the limit. That that's just too much. I like carrots and fried beans and burritos. Lots of sweets, Um, mainly cold sweets, but sometimes they're a little bit too cold and I get my eyes watery, and I like the church. The embodiments um, of the ascended masters are the most interesting to me. My favorite is Saint-Germain. He he is sort of like very magical, and he can, at least this is what our church believes, he can um, go go through walls, and stuff like that. I think that's neat. Oh, well, there's a lady about half hour away from us living down in the village and she has a really nice garden. She has a water circling a tree with roots, and she's really nice and pretty, and she's making little houses for gnomes. You can open the doors and stuff and open the roof to look in and she just let gnomes come in there and stuff. She likes fairies a lot too, and she's one of the nicest ladies in the village.
7: It was a beautiful, day of clouds and blue skies, and all of a sudden I found myself playing on the Nile River in the sand. I just knew intuitively, I knew in my being, I was on the Nile, and I was playing. And by and by, I just floated back to my sandbox in Red Bank. So I ran and I asked my mother what happened, and she said, you've remembered a past life.
1: And I never really had any trouble with the Catholic Church until I got old enough to think for myself confession. Why, if I sinned on Monday, did I have to wait till Saturday? And then why could I only talk to the priest and not a nun? So it bothered me. It bothered me that I wasn't allowed to just talk to God myself. Elizabeth Clare Prophet was going to be at the University of Penn. So I went to see her. And she's just talking and talking and talking. And I can remember everywhere she moved, I saw purple. If you can't touch it, I don't see it. And I've never seen anything, but I saw this field of purple all the way around her whole being. And I don't really remember too much of what she had to say, because I kept trying to figure out how they were making this purple come out of her.
8: We had gone to, so aptly named after one of our study groups, the Love Light Bakery. And uh, Jenna says, well, Joe White, stand up. And she stepped forward, wrapped her arms around me, and just gave me a big hug. I saw a bolt of light, pink light. It was about as big around as a softball, coming right out of her heart into mine. And it also made me lightheaded. And what my computer, my brain came up with was so many years of looking at cartoons when a guy would get conked over the head with a frying pan. I saw that same thing, and I heard the birds.
0: I've always dreamed of living where it's springtime all the year. That's my favorite season. <laughs> 'Cause people would say, Well, why do you want to go to Montana for? It's so cold up there. So, well, I got friends up there. And uh sometimes I think when you get my age and you get the feeling bad then you get down, you know, and, and you wonder what's going to happen to you. I am 87 years old, will be next month. I've got no relatives here
5: that I know of. So, I'm getting
7: sleepy. being in embodiment is because we have will to be here and one of the reasons we desire to be here is that we have unfinished business we have unfinished business with people in relationships we have unfinished business because each of us has a very unique divine plan and believe it or not you can get weary of this world you can you can say that your longings and your desires are for the octaves of light where there are golden age civilizations going on at this time where there are much more highly evolved beings uh, where there are universities of the spirit all is light we've exhausted our loves, our relationships and we know there's a place for us that will be more challenging and so there comes a time when we desire to transcend this mode of life and go on so the ascension makes you permanently one with God and you don't ever need to go back again and wear a mortal body with its frailties and so forth. So that's called an ascended master light body and you are an immortal being once you have made your ascension.
9: That was a year after my dad died. so. He was in the hospital for the month month of April in bozeman and that and that's where he died and that and that's where he died. He was able to hang on to see all of his family and then uh the day a day later, you know he left oh. why my dad died, why my brother was in an accident. I did not know what happened then, but I understand more now. Having my dad graduate, ascend, ascend. as far as from my point of view of myself, my, my my relation with him, it hasn't really changed. He's uh, still my father, but he, I see him, he's other people's fathers too, other embodiments. You know, I, I could say I talk to him sometimes, but just how you would talk you know, to Jesus or somebody else um it's it's hard to I- explain I lost one of my best friends you know i don't have a father to call up you know to go backpacking with or to you know to do whatever there is that loss you know just different available differently available um, well that's just one of the things which about these teachings is you never know everything. We have been told that every everyone can make their ascension at the end of this life. It is possible. Some might have to work harder yeah, that because of karma and past life, but it is possible. It is special, but I say it, not really special. You're not doing something that's that no one that that no one else can can do.
4: What you're in right now is the entryway and there's many scenarios to having to use this and if you would have come in and you've been contaminated by fallout you'd wash down with a hose which is over here and then you'd step into this area which is our decontamination area. And someone would help you wash down in here. And you need someone to help you because if you've been in fallout, you could have it in your ears, your nose. You need something cool. We
10: have a fallout shelter, as you know. You say that word and you touch a very deep, sensitive nerve.
4: Atomic weapon go off nearby. You get a tremendous pressure. To
10: the degree that these misunderstandings and have led to people so thinking that we are a survivalist cult. Uh, Bomb shelters are not a major part of our lives. We have other things that we like to think about. A shower. Uh
4: There's a commode behind the door. We
10: can't ignore the nature of the world that we live in. You have a place where you have the largest collection of nuclear weapons in the world, and you have the greatest concentration of political instability. I wonder what that means.
7: So if all the lights go out, we can still find our way
10: to the exit. In effect, a lot of our critics are asking us, to not respond to things that are obvious in the world. This all sounds bizarre. There have been previous civilizations, going back for hundreds of millions of years, and maybe longer, on this planet, and that some of the civilizations were great, had great light. They were all golden age civilizations. Various root races, what we call them. Whole life waves came, and evolved without ever ever having um, descended to the level of physicality that we are, and won the ascension and returned to God back and back and back and back. And that over time, um, there, was a, there was a fall which ultimately impacted Earth. Earth, as I understood it, became a home to the people decided that they would let people who from other planets who had lagged behind in the revolution come here to try to give them a spin. And they underestimated the problems that would come here and it caused a, a, a level of fall. And see, basically, uh, in the old days, people could create... Um, They imitated the creation of God because they were of a higher evolution than we currently are right now, and they knew the secrets of creation, but often they created forms that were essentially evil. They had a distortion of what the divine pattern was supposed to be, and that we have the record of that creation with us in the, um, the fossils that still exist here now of things like dinosaurs, you know what I mean? But what I think is even more important than the fact that there were dinosaurs is the fact that there were people who had the power and the capacity to create them. There are forces of light and forces of darkness. And that our church takes cognizance of that. We don't spend a great deal of time talking to the outside world about it because to some degree it sounds like um, uh, nonsense. And to whatever degree that you want to account for and take those things into consideration, all religious traditions particularly in their esoteric forms, recognize that there is good and evil and that there are always a relatively small number of people who are, first of all, cognizant of this fact and willing to do battle with the forces of evil on behalf of, an un, of a humanity that is unaware of what is actually going on. And that's what one of our, our major contributions to society is even though it is unknown or unknowable by most of the people because even if we told them they wouldn't understand it, and the rest would probably find it humorous and try to ridicule it. So it's just that simple.
5: My baby, baby, let's we'll start together.
0: Violet Flame, produced by Brenda Hutchinson for the documentary series Soundprint. Hutchinson is a composer and sound artist who's currently on an acoustic cross-country adventure, investigating the public's reaction to the sonorous tones of a 250-pound cast-iron bell. Or, put another way, if a bell rings in a shopping mall parking lot, will anyone respond? If you want to follow her progress, go to our website for a link. Our address is thirdcoastfestival.org. don't know who Joe Frank is, you're not listening to enough late-night radio. And if that's the case, we highly recommend you start, because there's no way to describe Joe Frank and his work. But here's a sample. It's called Minister, starring Joe Frank and David Cross.
4: Suffering on this earth is not distributed according to how good people are or how bad people are we often see bad people who do quite well in their lives and uh, you know people who are selfish and uh, unkind to others who prosper and who do very well and people who are decent and loving and kind who sometimes suffer horrible illnesses and uh, reversals in business and uh, and live in poverty if god is a just god and a good god then why is life so unfair
2: Well, that's why you have heaven and hell. I mean, you just answered your own question with my answer. And you don't go to heaven and punch in with a time card. You don't go, okay, I'm in heaven uh, for a two-week vacation. You're in heaven for eternity. This is sleeting, Mr. Frank. You know, you walk out your door and you go, oh, boo-hoo for me. You know, I didn't get my bagel this morning, or something like that, that upset you. You, if you are a good man, you will go and get your reward in heaven. If you are a bad man, you go to hell. Is that bagel
4: reference another put-down of uh, of the Jewish, uh, the the fact that I'm Jewish?
2: Stop with that. It is not a put-down. Do Jews eat bagels.
4: Uh, yeah, they do. Yeah, they
2: do. So then I thought maybe you had a bagel. How is that an offensive remark? Read your Bible. And I know you people have a Bible because we use it too. Okay? You, you people. It's in there. You people. What if I called your people?
4: You people. What's that supposed to mean? But what did you mean when you said you people have a Bible?
2: Jews have a Bible. <laughs> I'm sorry, is that... Did I make a lie or an aspersion? Was I casting aspersions when I said Jewish people have a Bible? Because if I did, then any time I say a true fact, then that makes me, you know, mean and bigoted. Is that what you're trying to say to me?
4: It's true that we have a Bible, but it's not Well, that's
2: what I'm trying to say.
4: Yeah, but it's a different Bible than the Bible that you have in a sense that...
2: Well, we use your Bible, too.
4: Yeah, but uh, you focus on the New Testament, and we focus on the Old Testament. We're not interested in the New Testament. You don't use the New
2: Testament at all.
4: That's true. We don't.
2: See what I'm saying? So we have twice the available information.
4: Well, I mean, it could be argued that I have the book that's the foundation of everything that has come since then, uh, the book that tells the fundamental truth and you have some offshoot, some something that came later that doesn't have the depth and the uh, doesn't resonate the same well, way. Well, Mr.
2: Franks, why don't I tell you what? Why don't you go find someone to argue that with and then come back to me and we'll continue this conversation, and I will wait on the phone line for you to get done with that futile exercise. Okay, I'll wait here. Do you seem rather
4: impatient and... Uh, you seem
2: rather impatient.
4: Well, you seem hostile. Well, you
2: seem hostile.
4: I'm just listening to you. I'm listening to what you're saying to me, and...
2: Can I quote a good friend of mine? Sure. His name was Rodney King. Ooh. He was severely beaten by four white policemen on a routine traffic stop when he was beaten the world broke out in riot. they were righteously indignant he said to everyone can't we all just get along that's something that i think about every day every day now i say to you mr frank can you and i just get along
4: When do you know that he's present, and when do you know that he's absent, even though he is present? He is always
2: present, yet sometimes his absence results in a cold feeling of the soul, and that's when God has...
4: But he's still present.
2: He is always there.
4: He's always there.
2: Always. But sometimes he leaves. Isn't that a beautiful, mysterious, wonderful thing?
4: So he is there.
2: He is always. There is not a time when he is not there, when, he, when his presence is not around you.
4: But then he leaves.
2: But then he leaves sometimes. But he's still there. He goes off on his own to do something for him. But he's still there. But he is still there.
0: Minister by Joe Frank, starring Joe Frank and David Cross. Joe Frank was the recipient of the Third Coast Festival Lifetime Achievement Award. You can hear more of his work on our website at thirdcoastfestival.org.
1: I want you to sit still and bask in it and revel in it and let it soak into your spirit. Let's listen to what the Holy Ghost is saying. Do you have a message in tongues? Let's listen to this message in tongues. The Bible says there is the gift of tongues and the gift of interpretation. So let's listen. Stand up, sister,
0: and give it to us. ReSound is a production of Chicago Public Radio and the Third Coast International Audio Festival. I'm Gwen Maxai. The program is produced by Roman Mars and curated by Johanna Zorn and Julie Shapiro of the Third Coast Festival. Our production assistant is Delaney Hall. You can hear today's program at thirdcoastfestival.org, where you can also hear dozens of outstanding documentaries from around the world. Lead support for the Third Coast Festival is provided by the Richard H. Driehaus Foundation, with additional funding from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, the National Endowment for the Arts, American Airlines, and Chicago's Navy Pier. Music for ReSound is provided by Reckless Records in Chicago. If you want to contact us, we'd love to hear from you. Email us at ReSound at thirdcoastfestival.org. ReSound returns next week with more radio that you can't hear anywhere else, unless you live everywhere else.